Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick again with Figured Out Baseball. We've got another Figured Out Baseball podcast today, and uh, I'm pretty excited to have this guy on right now. Uh, we have Tony Cagool, who is the pitching coach at Westmont College. It's an NAIA school in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, Tony and I have been friends for a long time, and he's also uh, one of our one of our contributors onto the website for uh, for pitching. He's one of our pitching guys on on the Figured Out Baseball site. So I, I thought it was important to bring him on just to for you guys to get to learn more about Tony and uh, and learn a little bit more about the videos that he's posted on the site and how the things that he's done, you know, the the content, his video, how it has affected his own players and his own program and uh, the success he's seen, you know, based on uh, on those. Well, that is. I guess has come from the drills that he's that he's done for the videos here. So I want to run you through a quick background on Tony, just so you can get to know him a little bit, know where he's been and things that he's done. Um, he's coaching in Santa Barbara, California, right now at Westmont College. He is a San Francisco, California native. Uh, he started out his playing career at a Division three school called uh, Pomona Pitzer. He got injured there, so ended up going to a junior college called Kenyatta College, uh, junior college there in California as well. From there, he uh, went to, got recruited to go to Mount Mercy, which is an NAIA school in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, his junior year there was his best year statistically. Tony went 8-2 and two as a junior with a 3.62 ERA. He was voted the team MVP that year and also voted onto the all-conference team. Since then, he spent 14 seasons as a college baseball coach. This upcoming season will be his 15th. He started out coaching in 2005 at Mount Mercy, his alma mater. Uh, there in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That year, the team went 42 and 28. They had a really very, very good team at Mount Mercy and Tony's time there as a player as well as uh, as as a coach. In 2006 and 7, Tony went back to California as uh, the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at Azusa Pacific, an NAIA school. They're now a Division II, but at that time they're NAIA, and that is in Azusa, California. In 2007, his team set a school record with 51 wins, as well as a team record with 32 conference wins. And for those of you who aren't uh, really well-versed in college baseball, I think anytime a team wins 50 games or more, that is, that's incredible. That's um, you're only going to have a couple teams at each level each year that win 50 or more games. So that's, that's a really an incredible feat. Um, in 2007, the Azusa Pacific team won the conference championship. They won the NAIA region two championship and went to the NAIA world series for the first time in 23 years. Uh, at Azusa, Tony coached six MLB draft picks as well as two future major league players. He got his master's degree from Azusa in 2007. In 2008 and 9, Tony went back to Iowa at Southeastern Community College, um, a junior college in Burlington, Iowa. There, Tony was the associate head coach. His first year, he was the pitching coach, and second year, he actually transitioned to be the what they called at that time the defensive coordinator, <laughs> an interesting position you don't hear a lot of in college baseball. Uh, he still did call the pitches during the game, but but as far as everyday practice, he worked with uh, worked with the defense overall. His 2009 team set a school record there with 41 wins. The team was ranked as high as number nine in the junior college pools that year, and they were top 10 nationally in fielding percentage. 2010, Tony went back to California. Uh, went back to went to Westmont College, which is where he is now. So he's been there since the spring of 2010. Um, from 2010 to 2013, listen to this statistic, the team at Westmont lowered their ERA by more than one run each year. That is very, very tough to do. In 2014, they had the lowest team ERA since 1977 with a 3.39 ERA. 
In 2015, the ERA went down to 3.22. They struck out 421 hitters that year, which is a team record. In 2016, the team ERA went down to 2.97, the eighth best in NAIA that year. They also set a school record that year with 17 saves as well as eight shutouts. In nine seasons at Westmont, Tony's teams have won 40-plus games twice. They've had two pitchers of the year, 10 all-conference pitchers. Um, they twice have had a pitcher that broke the all-time school record for wins. The career saves leader is, uh, is a guy that played at Westmont under Coach Cagool. Um, and, and from 2014 till 2016, the team for three straight years set a new school record for wins. They won 39 games, then 41, then 42. Um, and then 42 is still the school record for wins. For the last five seasons, Westmont has made it to the opening round of the national tournament in NAIA. That's, those are the first four times in school history they've gone that far, and now they've done it four years in a row. Uh, Coach Kugul has got an, an unbelievable track record. Uh, for my money, he's one of the best pitching coaches that you'll find out there, and a really personable guy, an easy guy to get along with, and a guy that I think the players really enjoy playing for. So for a lot of reasons, Tony, we're really glad to have you here uh, as a part of the podcast as well as just a part of Figured Out Baseball. Wow. Thanks, Jeff. That's an <laughs> unbelievable introduction. Um, yeah, that just means I had a lot of really good players playing for me. So I, I appreciate that and uh, look forward to to talking with you here and, and giving, giving the listeners something to uh, to learn a little bit about me and, and hopefully springboard them into the video set that, that we did um, for the website. Absolutely, man. I, I'm, I'm really excited. There's so much I want to talk about uh, in kind of a, a packed amount of time. First of all, the first thing I just want to ask you about is a little bit about uh, Figured Out Baseball. So um, I've been kind of talking with you about the website for several years, kind of before, uh, really before it became much of anything. And now that it is, uh, you know, it, it's happening, the site is, the site is really coming together and we're a couple of weeks away from the site launching. Um, it, it's a pretty exciting time for us here. And, and you shot some video recently um, with some things that you do with your pictures there. The first thing I just want to ask you, Tony, just for you to tell people kind of your feelings about things. I just wanted to find out what about figured out baseball made it something that you decided that you wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, ever since I, I played, I've always had a passion for the game. Uh, I think as a young player, you just go along playing and you, and you, you have success. And uh, at the time, you probably don't realize how fortunate you are to even play college baseball, but I definitely took that for granted. And, and the injury that you talked about, I think, really set me up in a course for really trying to be a lifelong learner and then pass that message along uh to kids to educate them and their families on what it looks like uh, to navigate the, the college, the college process, uh, but then also just navigate how to become a better baseball player. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons other than my love for the game that I do coach is, is to make my players and those around us better. And so what an awesome platform to educate people, not just that I come in contact with directly, but, you know, all over the country uh, and give them some tools in their tool belt that allow them uh, to maybe get better and maybe have an opportunity that I may not have had uh, when I played. Um, and so what you'll see in a lot of the videos is, is a lot of talk about arm care and, and, and development of, of being able to pitch uh, and stay healthy. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about uh, because I did not have that growing up and, and had two arm surgeries before the age of 20 and never really through a healthy pitch in college because uh, I was injured from the time I got to college till the time I ended. And so, uh, you know, I think 
this platform to be able to to reach so many people and and give people some tools is is something that aligns with my reason for coaching and I think it's an awesome opportunity for for all those out there that get involved with the website. And that's one of the really big reasons why I wanted why I kind of had the idea for the website in the first place was the same reason um, growing up in central Pennsylvania, I didn't have a lot of resources in, in my, in my fingertips. And, uh, you know, my dad was really, was really willing to do kind of anything he needed to do to help my brother and I on our quest of playing college baseball. But it was, um, there, there weren't, there weren't a lot of people you could go to people you could rely on people you could ask questions to. And I just think of this resource, you know, how much my brother and I could have benefited from this if we had it as, as, you know, early teenagers through high school and, and just really think it could have been, you know, really helpful, really, really helpful for us as well as a lot of the people around us. Um, would you mind just talking a little bit about some of the content of your video, you know, why you decided to shoot what you did, what people are going to see from your videos and, and um, let's, well, let's just start there. What, what kind of, would you just be able to describe what kind of videos you shot? Yeah. So I think all of the videos that were shot were kind of lead up drills into, into catch play. It's something that, um, you know, we've, I've researched, I've um, talked with a lot of people about, I've learned a lot, um, you know, over the years. And I think probably from about 2014 until now, this warm-up has kind of morphed into what it is today. Um, You know, being at a small college with not a ton of resources uh, and not always um, getting that, that, you know, highly rated player at a high school, uh, we were really built on development. And so I needed to find some sort of advantage over our opponents that were able um, to maybe get a different type of player than we were. Uh, Westmont's a, a, a very rigorous academic institution. We're a Christian college. And so we have kind of a niche market that we're going after in the recruiting process. We can't just go to a showcase and look at all those players and say, I want that guy on my team. Um, just, it, do, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so we were getting, uh, you know, a, a good pitcher that maybe was, was short of, of velocity. And so I needed to find a way to a, be able to add velocity and B keep them healthy. And so um, I did some research. I, I came across some stuff with the Texas baseball ranch. Um, and then that morphed into, into getting to know the guys at driveline baseball in Seattle and uh, really using a lot of the, the protocols that they have put in place and, and going up there and studying them for a couple days in their facility and having players train there and, and, um, so that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a full full warm up of what we do, um, in addition to some some Jager band stuff. I'm a really good friend uh, with Alan Jager, and um, and I've been we've been doing the band since 2006 at Azusa Pacific when I met Alan. Um, so that's been going on for for quite a while. And so just just some some actual um, meaningful things that you can do to get your body prepared. Um, in the, in the day and time where all we do is care about how quickly can we get to the field and get loose and play a game and play four games a day and play, play, play. Uh, hopefully this gives some insight into what it looks like to take care of your arm and prep yourself and, and really, uh, warm up to throw and not just throw to warm up, really take some, some, um, ownership into your development as a player. So you're going to see some warm up stuff without a ball. And then we're going to get into some throwing drills, uh, which are really going to hopefully um, clean up some guy's arm action, um, maybe maybe help some deficiencies in the throwing motion, and just get guys consistent and 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 get them efficient, and so so they can just lengthen their career and and, and avoid some injury. Something you just said there uh, about 
warming up to throw instead of throwing to warm up is <clears throat> is a concept that I think is is pretty well known in college baseball and professionally, but but something at younger levels, which is still uh, either unknown or or overlooked. And I think you know a big part of it is like you said, these tournaments. A lot of times, you know, they give teams twenty minutes to get to get ready to go, and in twenty minutes, there's not a whole lot you can do. But what you should be doing to warm up properly, as you're saying, I mean, you, just to give people a better idea, people that are maybe hearing this for the first time, you need to get your body warm. You need to get a little bit, you need to get hot, you know, get your body temperature up, get some blood flowing before you start throwing. Why is that so important? Yeah, I, I think as a young player, and I was guilty of this myself and probably put myself in risk of injury, um, you know, by the time I was in college, um, but nobody really feels any sort of, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear of young guys getting hurt from overuse, but a lot of times your body's just so um, young that you just, you don't get sore. And so you just get in this routine of, well, I'm never sore. So I'm just going to keep throwing and throwing and throwing and throwing. Um, And then once we get to a point where maybe we start maturing and and hitting that level where um, strength becomes a part of the game, um, you know, you're seeing guys fatigue or get sore or get hurt. And then we move into this model of, okay, well now that we're hurt, we need to do these protocols to return to throw. Well, let's get out in front of that. Um, let's, let's put these things in place so they become part of our everyday movements. Um, it's only going to make us a better player. Um, and, you know, throwing is one of the most dynamic things you can do in any sport. There's so many pieces to it um, that we probably don't even understand yet uh, as we get further and further into tech um, with biomechanics and things like that, where we're able to see some stuff um, you know, we're going to start learning more and more about how we throw. But I just think, guys, we don't understand what it takes to, to throw at a high level. And so you get young kids playing travel ball, moving into high school, maybe playing a 25 or 30-game spring schedule, and then they get to college and they're playing a 50-game schedule and they're being asked to throw five to six days a week. Um, and they're just doing the things that they've been doing their whole life, which is just show up to the park, uh, maybe you know pull their arm across their, their body and stretch it out and do a little – tricep stretch over their head that, that, you know, maybe a couple arm circles and grab a ball and start chucking it. Um, you know, we need to get our, our muscles warmed up. We need to get our shoulder activated. We should be, you know, my goal for all of our guys is we should just like a boxer entering the ring, there should be a little bit of a lather going. You should have a little bit of body heat. You should have some perspiration or some sweat to get your body going to prepare yourself to do the activity that you're doing, which for a pitcher is throwing. And so, um, you know, for that boxing analogy, if you see a guy walk up to the ring and he's bone dry, a lot of times those guys get knocked out in the first round because they're not ready to compete. Uh, They haven't put their body in position to do that. And so I think the same applies to a pitcher. If we're not getting that body temperature up, we're not heating up our body and all the things that take to throw, it's not just your arm. Um, You know, it really starts from the ground up. If those things aren't in place and aren't ready to go, then we just put ourselves at risk of injury. And just because there's 20 minutes before a game, to, to play or you get access to the field 20 minutes before a game as a young player. I know teams are there an hour before and hitting wiffle balls and getting in the cage. Um, just as important as it is to, to get warmed up to hit, it's also important to get warmed up to throw. So you kind of mentioned there early on that, uh, well, I guess when we were talking about your videos, that, that some of the things that you do, the throwing drills that you do <clears throat> to help make the arm action, the arm path more efficient. I'm not sure if efficient is the word that you used, but um, but that's you know kind of what they're after. 
or what they're trying to do. Can is there is can you define? Is it possible to define what an efficient arm action is, or does it vary from person to person? So when someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I want to make my arm path more efficient, is there is that something that can be defined, or is it something that needs to be shown, or again, is it is it different from guy to guy? Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely going to be uh, some individuality um, to that. I think uh, when you, for me, the thing that I that and it pains me to say this as a coach, but I think a lot of times we actually coach um, the efficiency out of the player um, because of maybe some of the things that we were taught. And so really the way that I, the way that I look at it, the most athletic throwers on the field um, are usually your shortstop. And a lot of, a lot of that is because when they feel the ball and throw it to first base, they don't have a lot of time. So they're, they're making that play as athletic as possible. And if you take videos of shortstops that throw the ball across the diamond or outfielders that throw the ball to the plate um, on a do or die type play where they don't have a lot of time. Um, the efficiency of the arm is it's continuous. It doesn't stop. It doesn't have hitches. A lot of times the ball never really drops uh, much below their thigh. Um, a lot of times it's at their belt or uh, a lot of infielders have like a bow and arrow type action where it's just coming straight out with, with your elbow um, getting back and maybe pinched behind your, your shoulder blade there. Um, and some scap load was what, what it would be defined as. Um, and then we take that same player that has, you know, the rocket for an arm that plays in the middle of the diamond and we put them on the mound and we uh, instill in them a fear of if they don't throw strikes, they're not going to pitch. And so they turn into aimers. And what that usually does is it slows down the body. It slows down the lower half. Um, it lengthens out the arm and, and, um, and it takes the complete athleticism and reason why we put that player on the mound in the first place completely away. And so, um, you know, I think an efficient arm action is one that um, is continuous, um, is relatively short in nature in the back, um, not really long, not pointed to second, not pointed down, uh, but really efficient, continuous. And then when that front foot gets down, um, in a power position that 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 arm is is in a good position to throw which is the hand is inside of the elbow um and the elbow slightly below the shoulder and the ball is pointed you know in the direction of like the off infielder so maybe in the five six hole for a right hander or the three four hole um for a left-handed left-handed thrower but um you know and I've been guilty of, of teaching this early on, you know, when I was really, really young, you know, I was taught, you know, point the ball to second base and, and reach out and all these things. And, um, and that's the exact opposite of how most guys with really good arms throw. And so, um, you know, I think some demonstration is needed. Uh, maybe you get a little bit of a picture of that um, in the description, but I think, uh, you know, going to those videos and watching some of the drills that we do, we're really em emphasizing those um, moving through those positions and getting there um, with some weighted implements, uh, you know, quarterbacks in football, uh, you know, all of them have short arm action. Um, you know, really for, for those that follow football at all, the one of the, the best college football players ever to play is Tim, Tim Tebow. And he never made it in the NFL because he had bad arm action. And what was that arm action? It was long. The ball dropped below his waist. Um, it wasn't quick. It wasn't efficient, but you see most, most quarterback um, arm actions, very, very short. And, um, you know, so it's going to be a pretty similar to that of most, uh, most good, good throwers in baseball. I can remember when I was in college that my, 
my college head coach who was, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't very good, but I, I think there was a lot of things that he did that were, that were really good. And one of them is that he liked our pitchers, even at that time when I was in school to, to warm up with the football. And like, he just, he liked, he liked their arm action better with the football than with the baseball. And they had a hard time repeating it, but it was like, at that time, it was like, I don't know what exactly to do other than make them throw a football you know, to get them to have that arm action. But it was like guys had a cleaner arm action with the football than a baseball. And I had the same experience as you. I know when I was probably an early teenager, I went to a camp and an Indian scout uh, was, was, we were going through some throwing drills and he was teaching us the same thing you just said, like have the ball turned away from you, what he would call like the ball to the wall, or like if you're on a mound ball facing second base. And he was telling us, you've got to reach back as far as you can with your arm there. And he was comparing that to like, a rubber band effect you know you've got to stretch it out for it to be able to whip back through and it's and there is there is truth to like you you want your uh guess with your body through the delivery you want some some tension in there but it's not exact that's not how it's supposed to be done but it's just funny how that's happened and i'm sure that nothing has changed in the arm action it's just a that that things have changed as far as you know our our understanding of how the body works, right? I mean, that's really what's happened over the last handful of years when um, when things have really changed with how you coach pitchers, even from when you started coaching until now, it's just a better understanding of how things work, right? No doubt about it. And, and, and you know, you have cameras that no one could afford now in your phone, you know? So people, ask, you know, there's obviously very, very high-end cameras that are upwards of $10,000 that will you know, break down crystal clear HD quality video at, you know, multiple thousand frames per second. That's probably overkill. I think, you know, for us as a, as a program at Westmont, you know, we have iPads and, and iPhones or whatever phone you you have, that's going to be able to take 240 frames per second. And so what we really thought we were seeing with the naked eye, um, you know, looking at that in video and saying, oh, well, maybe that isn't correct. All these guys seem to be getting in this position. Uh, why is that? Maybe there's something to it. Uh, so I think just technology in general has helped us maybe, like you said, understand what the body's doing. And um, a lot of times it's, you know, you watch, as, like I said before, I'm a student of the game, so I'm watching a lot of, a lot of baseball and, and hearing what even the best guys in the game feel what they're doing and then actually seeing what they're doing and they're completely different. And so um, if we know what most of the elite throwers are doing, uh, why can't we take the qualities of, of our pitchers? And I'm not saying copycat it, but what, what those guys are doing, maybe at some point we're getting into those similar movements or, or, or close to those movements throughout the delivery. And so that's, we've really used that to our advantage. And for me, throwing the heavier implements that we throw um, daily um, the weighted, the weighted plyo balls and, and weighted baseballs and footballs, all that stuff helps to just kind of repattern um, our arm action and help us to, to, you know, get a little bit cleaner of a, of a, of a delivery. So a term that's come up in the past couple of years that I, that I don't remember hearing until in the last couple of years is movement pattern. If someone hears the term movement pattern, I mean, I think that it, to, to a point it defines itself, but if someone hears that, which it's it's like a really, really commonly used phrase now, can you define for listeners what a movement pattern is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just how, like, 
like you said, it's, it kind of defines itself. But how the body is moving, um, what maybe what the what the ideal movement of of our body is uh, through certain different positions. And so, um, you know, if the if the ideal arm action um, for us is you know breaking somewhere in the middle of our body and and um, you know getting our hand up into a good position at foot strike. Um, the, I guess the the movements within that those points from point A to point B from when we start and when we stop would be the movement pattern. And so if we have a break in that movement pattern where we do have a hesitation or we do have a hitch or or maybe we're um, you know adding something that doesn't need to be added, then we would say, hey, we may, we we need to clean up that movement pattern. We need to get that pattern that you're doing closer to to this and how do we do that and so we would, we would probably come up with some drills and 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 some things to to help that movement pattern so basically the 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 for i would say from the start to the stop um looking at that whole part of the body would would be kind of how i define movement pattern or what i'm looking at as a movement pattern for our guys okay so so any sort of drill whether on the website or whether it's you know if somebody's going to an individual instructor if they're if they're working on if they're doing something that's supposed to help their clean up their movement patterns, it's just it's essentially just help. It's a drill that's meant to help them to move more efficiently. Correct, correct, okay. and 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 hopefully the drill has some. I mean, there's going to be some drills that you'll see that that uh, that I've posted that will take some pieces of the delivery out of it. So if we're trying to train arm action, then we don't need our lower half in certain drills, and so we're going to do a drill that completely takes the lower half out of it. We have some drills that, um, you know, maybe can be done on one knee uh, or we're just trying to, if we're trying to train arm action, well then we're going to isolate arm action for a certain part of the drill. And then once we get really good at that part of the drill, then we move on to something that maybe adds another element into the movement, but still has arm action as part of it. So we'll start from, um, you'll hear people say it's like a constraint. So the most constrained to the least constrained, meaning um, all you're working on is arm action, and then you're working on arm action with some lower body movement, and then you're working arm action with lower body movement through a full pitch. So we're going to go from just focusing on arm action to adding another element of the delivery to it to adding the full pitch to it and see if we can keep um, those good movements that we're trying to train uh, present from the easiest thing to do to the most difficult thing to do, which is to throw a pitch ball on the mound to the catcher. So you've done quite a few drills and you do things with your players a lot with weighted balls, but it's not always, I think when a lot of people think of weighted balls, they think of, of pure throwing programs where like they're, you know, they're on a mound or on a flat ground uh, and they're throwing an underweighted ball, a normal baseball and an overweighted ball. But you do things almost every day with your players, with the plyo balls, um, I'm not sure if you do anything with with a you know a leather baseball that's overweighted on a normal day, but what does adding extra weight? And you kind of mentioned using a, like a football as well, throwing a football. What does using or throwing I guess something that weighs more than a five ounce tip you know normal everyday baseball? What does that do? How does that help create these optimal movement patterns? I think it creates some awareness. Um, you're definitely going to feel the difference between. I mean, we have a pile ball that weighs four pounds. Um, so you're, you're talking a lot more than a baseball. And so, you know, in order to keep your arm action, um, you know, shorter, uh, you're not going to be able to have a really efficient movement 
with a four pound ball. That's the same reason why you see quarterbacks that throw the ball so well have a have a short arm action. I think the weight of the ball um, almost corrects your body into saying, okay, well, if if I'm a guy that really likes to stab down towards the ground with my arm action, you see that all the time. A guy will come out of his glove and the ball will come straight down towards his knee and almost like stop um, and then and then pick up and then throw. You do that with a four pound ball, you know, there's going to be some instant feedback that says that is not correct. And so <laughs> that, that, that is, that, you know, in the, in the most plain terms, um, you know, that, that I think really cleans it up on its own. Uh, and so awareness is a big thing and, and, and um, you know, getting, getting feel for what is incorrect helps us get to something that is correct. And so, uh, you know, that's, those are the things that we do. The biggest thing for us though, obviously I'm fortunate to work with 18 to 22 year old, you know, young adults and men that have strength. And so, um, you know, we're not just blindly picking up a weighted ball and trying to throw it as hard as we can. There's a program in place and, um, you know, assess physical assessments that are done before we do that. But, um, I think, I think the overweighted ball, um, you know, just gives guys a feel for, you know, a little bit more. I hate to keep pounding the word efficient, but, um, you know, it just, it gives the guys some feel for, for what it, what the, the arm action should be closer to that you just can't get away with having an inefficient and, and unathletic movement of your arm with a, with a, a ball that's heavier. I think that's really the simplest explanation for that. And I think, uh, it gets us into good positions to throw the ball um, daily. It's just, and, and the drills are meant to, to, to get us there. And so I think that that's, like I said, in the simplest terms, the, the weight of the ball really cleans up a lot of the things that we're looking to clean up. So just by basically just by doing those drills, you you almost can't do them wrong. The way that the drills are set up and, and using the extra weight from the plyo balls, you, it's almost hard to do the drills incorrectly and, and it's almost naturally just going to make your arm action cleaner and more efficient and, and just bring up that, the phrase again, it's going to help your movement patterns get more efficient naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. There's going to, okay. there's, there's some learning curve into, into doing the drills correctly. And so I think I say it multiple times in the video, once you get a chance to see the videos for those listeners, um, you know, keep in mind that you're seeing you know, someone that's been doing the drill for, for, multiple years and so they make it look easy and, and you try to do the drill and you say that doesn't look right at all um, there is some learning curve in understanding the movement um, but once you once you do get the movement down um, yeah the the weight of the ball and the movement itself will become um, a little bit more natural and, and clean up a lot of things just by like you said understanding the movement and the weight of the ball uh, really helps let's change gears a little bit I, I want to talk about I want to talk about the NAIA level a bit because it's it's not as well known of an entity as the NCAA, um, but I think it's important for people, for listeners to know that there's there's more than one sort of governing body out there for college athletics. Um, you know, personally, I wasn't very familiar with the NAIA when I was coming through high school and, and really even in, in college, we I uh, played a couple NAIA schools. That was kind of my first exposure. And then, you know, coaching at a junior college, we would send players onto that level. And I began to learn more about it and have more and more respect for it. Um, but for people that aren't familiar, because I think in different areas of the country, like in Pennsylvania, I think there's one NAIA school in the whole state. So it's just, it's not something you hear a whole lot of growing up, but in other areas of the country, it's, it's more prevalent. 
would you just be able to talk a little bit about like what what do people need to know about NAIA just to sort of introduce them to to what it is? And then I've got some other, I guess if you, depending how long that answer is, I'd like to know just sort of, you know, what are scholarship opportunities like at the NAIA? You know, uh, uh, let's just start with, let's start with that, I guess. Is there anything, how would you introduce people to NAIA level? Yeah, I think um, we get that question a lot, even in California. Uh, the NAIA is, like you said, a separate governing body from the NCAA. And so there's going to be some some differences in, in kind of how we uh, do certain things. Um, our recruiting model looks a lot different and we don't have the, the same type of dead period. So we can kind of recruit uh, all year round and um, in the recruiting process, that's, that's how that, that's going to look different. Um, I think from a, from a play stand, standpoint, um, we get a lot more freedom in kind of how we are able to develop our guys. So, so we're allowed 24 weeks of, of practice throughout the year and, for us being in a, in a warm weather climate, what that means is we get the entire spring semester. So that's 16 weeks. So we get eight weeks of full team fall practice, which is huge. It's, it's not restricted by time. It's restricted by days of the week. So we uh, are not allowed to, to, uh, to work seven consecutive days. So basically one day a week off, uh, but no really hours restrictions and no restriction to like small group. And so, um, I think that's one key for us that's really helped our development. Uh, we're able to strengthen condition as a group uh, all year. We just can only do baseball activity with bats and balls for 24 weeks. So we break it up into eight weeks in the fall, 16 weeks in the spring. Uh, it actually probably looks more closely to like a junior college calendar um, where you can pretty much play all year round. Um, so I think that's, that's a huge advantage for us. Um, the level of play, I would think just, as in any college baseball level, um, it's going to be geographic, you know, so you're looking at, um, you know, pockets of the country that are going to be really, really strong and maybe some other pockets of the country where the baseball might not be as strong, but I think that's the same um, for a lot of, a lot of levels, you know, more of the really high profile NAI programs are West coast, you know, the Southeast, um, Texas, the warm weather areas, and then, you know, you'll have pockets of, of good baseball uh, throughout the Midwest as well. Um, and it is a scholarship level. And so uh, I know you said we'll talk a little bit about scholarships, but the NAI is a scholarship level. And so um, I think a lot of times you go to a, a, a showcase or a recruiting camp and you see, um, I see this all the time. I see the scale. I see division one, division two, II, division three, NAI, JUCO. So I, it, it you know, for no, through no fault of any, of anybody, it's not explained. And so, but the natural explanation is, okay, well, NAI is just above JUCO and below division three. And so, you know, I've been around the game a long, a long time. There's division three programs that could be division one programs. There's NAI programs that um, every year um, play division ones in midweek games and, and win those games. Uh, in 2007, uh, that is a Pacific team that we had that, uh, you know, had all those guys drafted and future big leaders, we beat a class A affiliate of the angels in an exhibition game. And so um, it's a, it's a really good level. Um, you know, I can speak to California cause that's where I've coached the longest, but um, you know, it's a scholarship level in, in Southern California. And so uh, lots of good players, guys getting drafted every year and, and, you know, guys, a few guys here and there making some big league, big league debuts and, and playing in the big leagues. And so it's a, it's a really, really good level. Um, 
and you know one that I've been a part of for for now 13 of my 15 years as a college coach and so um, you know m most of the schools are going to be small schools um, for example Westmont has an enrollment of about 1200 uh, and we're probably like the second biggest in our conference and so uh, it's going to be smaller smaller private schools for the most part there's some state schools throughout the country that are also NAI but um, smaller private colleges um, and and uh, yeah really good level for us we've we've uh, as you said in the bio we've had 11 guys in the last five years go on to play professionally and so I think we've established a program um, that is respected among scouts in our community that if a guy's putting up numbers at our level um, he's worth coming to see it's so important for people to understand that because when you're going through the recruiting process the hardest thing in my opinion, for players and their parents, their families to compartmentalize when they're going through the whole process is like, how do we just, how do we begin to narrow it down? And I think sometimes people hear NAIA, a school is an NAIA school, and, and they, they sort of dismiss it, like you, like, just like you said, because they don't believe or from what they hear, it's not the same level of play, but it is. Anytime you've got, you're averaging almost about two guys a year being you know, being drafted out of your school, like that's better than, than a lot of division one programs that, that are in the country. And and there are a lot of division one programs that aren't very good, but they're, you know, I guess kids like to say that they're, they're going on to play at a division one school. It's, it's nice to tell people, but at the end of the day, there are more important things than that. And uh, I think we've all, you know, play, anytime that someone's been through what you have or what I have, you just, you know, that there's more important things than just the name on the shirt you know, of the school that you're committing to. So it's just, it's nice to to let people know a little bit more about the NAIA. Now, scholarship wise, is there a limit at the level? I know that there are limits in, in NCAA division one and two and in junior college division one and two, there are limits to scholarships. Um, are there, are there limits at NAIA as well? Yes, there are. So uh, we're actually of four year colleges, the NAIA is funded the best. So we were, uh, the NAIA limit is 12, uh, full scholarships for baseball. And so as compared to NCAA Division One is 11.7, and I believe NCAA is, is eight, uh, Division Two is eight, and then Division I think three it's nine, but regardless. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and Division Division Three is non-scholarship. And so um, of the four-year levels, NAIs are, you know, can be funded the best. Um, you know, the one thing, obviously being at Westmont, I can speak to us. The other thing that we could do that maybe some other places can't do is we can stack our aid, which what that means is you can qualify for academic scholarship. You can qualify for some need-based money from the college or the government. And then we can put baseball money on top of that where some institutions are set up where, um, you know, baseball money is what you get and that's all you get. Um, and so we're able to to be creative with some of the financial aid packages that, that we can come up with. Um, you know, and I think, at the end of the day, um, it should be everyone's goal as a high school baseball player to want to play at the highest level. If if that's not your goal, um, you know, then then you know, I don't know that we're competing to our best. But at the same time, you can have an unbelievable baseball experience and college experience at a lot of different levels. And our game is so unique in that. Um, the, the measurable statistics and data are the measurable statistics and data for everyone. Um, that's why you don't see a ton of NAI division three, division two, uh, NFL athletes or, uh, NBA basketball players. 
but you do see quite a bit of non-Division One players um, in baseball. And, you know, having a minor league system allows for a little bit more quantity of player. Um, but you need to take that into consideration. If you're going to be a Division One player and, and you're – on a roster, that's a big deal. Um, but if you're the 35th guy for three straight years or two straight years, and now you don't have an opportunity anymore, or you can go to a junior college or an NAI program in Division Two and develop, um, you know, that's the only real way you're going to know if you're going to get any better and have a chance to play on. And so, we run into that all the time. We feel like if we're doing a really good job in recruiting, then we are battling it out with some of those mid-major Division One programs and high-level Division Two programs um, for guys. And you know, sometimes. Some families understand that um, it's more important to to be in the right school, regardless of baseball. Um, and some just want to be on a website and say that um, you know that they're hashtag blessed on Twitter to, to, sign, <laughs> to sign a Division One uh, scholarship or or a roster spot. And so, you know, that's that's each individual's um, you know deal. And, and I think the biggest thing that, that we try to do is get guys on campus, expose them to the level. We have a unique opportunity as an NAI uh, program where we can have guys come in and practice with our team. And that's something that really sets us apart. Um, you know, you come on a visit and you're a shortstop and we really like you. Well, all right, let's go into practice and you can take, take ground balls side by side with our starting shortstop and hit BP with, with our guys. And if guys underestimate the level you know, typically after a day of practice with our guys, they realize, okay, well, coach, coach was was telling me the truth. These guys can play, and um, it's a good level. And um, you know, I think most scouts, if you talk to scouts around the country, I think just as a blanket statement, they would really probably categorize NAI baseball on par with Division Two baseball as a whole. Um, and then, like I said, in d- different pockets of the country, you're going to have uh, NAI programs that. Uh, would be able to compete in some small mid-major division one programs and, and or division one conferences. And, and I think that goes, goes for anywhere, you know, division three baseball in certain parts of the country are, is really, really competitive as well. So um, baseball is unique in that you can, um, like I said, you can have opportunities to play on and really get better at any level, because if you throw 92, you throw 92. If you're an offensive lineman in division three, um, it might not equate to be an offensive lineman in the NFL, but if you, have velo or you can really hit or you have a really good out pitch um you may get an opportunity to play professionally after that no matter where you're at so many good points that you brought up there tony and uh and it's so valid so part of the reason i asked i asked these questions on the podcast is just to i want people to understand that about baseball is that it's different like in the nba how many rounds are there like six rounds of the draft or i, I don't know i don't know i don't follow the nba much, i think there i think there's only two are there really only two? So maybe the NFL has like what, six players. rounds? Uh, NFL, yeah, six six to ten, something like that. Okay. I mean, so there are just so few rounds there, and I think that's a that's part of the biggest reason, you know, and and you have so many so few guys that are that are able to move on to the next level. And in baseball, like you said, with forty rounds plus guys that are signing free agent contracts, um, you know, and ultimately, if you can hit the ball pretty far and you hit the ball really hard and you throw or you throw the ball really hard, then, you know, you a lot of times guys can get opportunities. And one of the best pieces of advice that I would give, and I, I try to, you know, stay out of this a lot, but it's it's hard to ask this question and get you to say this, but I'm, I'm betting you'll agree with me. And you sort of said this with guys coming to practice, but as a young player out there, 
and you're trying to decide what level is right for you, the best thing, almost the best advice I could tell you would be to go watch games. You know, you talk to a lot of high school players and travel baseball right now, and, and between travel baseball and high school ball, kids are, are playing so much that I don't know that they get to watch the game enough. And if you go and watch some teams that are local to you, whether it's a local NAIA, Division Two, II, Division Three, or if it's a you know mid-major Division One or a major Division One, go watch those games at that level and, and try to imagine yourself on that field with those guys and see if you can compete with them. And uh, you, I think people, excuse me, I think people will be surprised at the level of play at at a lot of lower levels and and uh, and at least for my money, and you said this as well. There's a lot more to just being on a roster, not playing. You know, I think for people to be happy in their college careers, I think guys enjoy winning. I think guys enjoy playing. And heck, if you can go to a Power Five conference and and you know be a guy that sees a lot of innings, great for you. You know, but if whether and, and whether you're talking about a Division Two NAIA or Division One, doesn't matter. If you're the 35th guy on that roster, it's not going to be a whole lot of fun for you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. No doubt. And I think. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's cause I'm exposed to this more and it's, it's the game I coach, but I feel like you just see it year after year. And maybe cause we follow the guys that we recruit that maybe we feel like, man, Westmont would have been an unbelievable fit for that kid. And he really could have developed. And all of a sudden you see that guy, um, you know, sign with school X because they're really excited about, you know, being able to be a part of that program. And then after the fall, um, they don't have an opportunity anymore and then they bounce to a junior college and then they bounce to another four year. And then if that doesn't work out, they're going to another four year, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to build men, you know, uh, in this four year, you know, time in their life. I mean, this is, these are some of the most uh, transformative years in, in a, in a, in a person's life, 18 to 22 in the college experience. Um, baseball is really, really important. And it's what I do. It's my livelihood. It's what I love, but at the end of the day, if we're not making great decisions on where we should be going to college to set ourselves up for life past baseball, because even though there are opportunities in professional baseball after college, the amount of guys that are making a living playing this game are few and far between. And so um, I think sometimes we get wrapped up in the wrong things. And so, uh, I mean, we, we encourage that. We encourage going out to watch games, um, like you said, um, to, to see what, what the level looks like. You know, it's funny, as you do this more, you start to reflect back and, uh, you know, the, the 2015 team that we had, uh, um, I mean, I, could, I would put that team up against anybody. Uh, you know, we fell short of making it to the World Series, but we had, when it's all said and done, after those guys, the, the, last, the last group of, of freshmen on that team just graduated last year for us. Um, we had six pitchers drafted that were on that team, and we had um, – three position players signed free agent. One of those guys that didn't was the player of the year in our conference. And we had a third baseman that's been playing independent ball for the past three years. So we're talking about like 10 guys that have moved on to play professional baseball. One of those guys made his major league debut this year. And two of those guys played in the Arizona fall league, which is where a lot of the top prospects go and, and, you know, really mean they're probably on track to hopefully at some point make the major leagues. And that's on an NAI program with 1200 students at their college with, you know, eight to 10 guys getting a chance to play on um, after college. And so, uh, yeah, go check it out. If you're, if you're in a, in a place where there's a lot of baseball and a lot of different levels, um, 
I can't encourage you enough to go go watch the games and, and see the different levels. I know for me, I grew up in the Bay Area, like you said, and, um, you know, back in the olden days, there wasn't internet and all this, all this <laughs> research on schools. You know, I grew up in San Francisco, so, you know, every Friday night and Saturday when we didn't have games, I was in Palo Alto watching Stanford. So I was going to go to Stanford. Uh, if I had an opportunity to look at Stanford's roster, I would have realized they didn't have a whole lot of five foot ten, mid eighties righties. <laughs> they had six foot five, low to mid nineties dudes. And and even though I went to watch them every day that they played on Fridays and Saturdays or Sundays when I could, um, I probably wasn't really realistic with with uh, who I was as a player. And so um, I think that's important. I think it's important for parents. I think that's important for coaches. Uh, the more exposure you get to different levels, um, the more you realize, um, again, you can have a great experience as a college baseball player at, at many different levels. And the best guys are just as excited to send their players to a place like Westmont or a place like Southeastern, uh, you know, the junior college that we coach that because if they, they know they're going to develop, they know they're going to be well taken care of, and they know they're going to be set up uh, for whatever's next, whether it's baseball or not. And I think, um, you know, we're in a day and age where social media is a big deal and a lot of people want to do self-promotion. And, um, you know, if I was running a baseball facility, the more Division One players that I could put on my alumni list, that would probably help me, um, you know, in my future recruiting. Um, but I think retention and getting those guys to the right place and, and, and the experience they're having at those schools is just as important as the fact that they're going there. And so, um I think that could be lost a little bit, um, but I, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we try to encourage every single player that comes on our campus to see as many places um, as they can, uh, because the the number one uh, word that we use in the recruiting process for us is fit. If guys just want to play in Santa Barbara, which if you don't know where Santa Barbara is, I can see the ocean from the parking lot of the baseball field and we're tucked into a mountain. It's sunny and 75 pretty much every day. Um, we have a brand new baseball facility. We're the number one Christian college, liberal arts Christian college in the country. And, and we're a top 25 baseball program. There's a lot of people that would be drawn to that. But if you're not drawn to the type of school we are, um, the type of campus culture we have, the small school environment, um, you know, growing in your faith or being exposed to, to what it may look like to, to be exposed to the Bible or your faith. If those things aren't important to you and it's just baseball, that model usually doesn't work in our program. And so um, I think the more research you can do, um, go to practices, go to games, talk to players, talk to coaches, um, the more you can do, the more, the more you set yourself up for success in your college baseball choice. Yeah. I don't mean to, uh, <clears throat> to, to put down programs that do this necessarily, but I guess I sort of, I sort of do in a way what you just said about when kids come on campus and you encourage them to see other places. One of the things that probably frustrated me the most as a recruiting coordinator in college was when a, when a player would go visit a school and a school would give him 24 hours to commit. Like, I mean, you're, you're talking to a 16, 17 year old kid who's making a decision that he's not even going to be on campus for a couple of years and he's going to be there for four years and you want him to make a decision within 24 hours after seeing your place. That was just one of the things that, that probably frustrated me the most, maybe partly because I wasn't, I was never at one of those schools where if I gave kids 24 hours, I probably wasn't, wasn't going to hear yes a whole lot. But at the same time, like you, you, um, 
like you said, you you feel like maybe sometimes your campus and your overall program is a better fit for a guy, but a, another school, you know, with uh, you know that that you get a chance to maybe watch on TV from time to time on national broadcast, you know, a kid goes to visit there and they're given 24 hours to make a decision. And the kid thinks, well, geez, if I don't, you know, this is my only shot at that place. And a lot, a lot of, a lot of bad decisions are made. I would love for someone to come up with a statistic, I think for travel ball, frankly, and for colleges of the number of kids that start in that program at that school who actually graduate, meaning, you know, once they get to Westmont, do they stay at Westmont and graduate or do they transfer and I know that at the NCAA there are statistics, but you know they're skewed because sometimes guys will—I don't know—there are things that are done, I guess, where where the retention rate is is a little bit skewed, and um, some things we don't have time to get into right now. But it would be a good statistic to know. And in a place like Westmont is a place I think if people are committing there, you know, they're going there for the right reasons, and um, and, and and on a really good coaching staff, a tremendous coaching staff that you guys have. I, I know. Uh, your head coach a bit, and and obviously I've known you for a long time, Tony. And um, if you haven't been to Santa to the Westmont website, by the way, just go and check it out. You know, with just the setting they have, it's it's an unbelievable, one of the most beautiful places in the country to go and and spend time as a 18 to 22 year old. I mean, if I could go back and do it again, <laughs> I might be going to Westmont. I don't know if you'd have me, coach, but uh, <laughs> but I'd love to play out there. Um, and I think it just there are so many, I guess my point is that there are so many great colleges out there where a guy can have a great baseball experience, get a great education, you know, be in a fun area of the country where you just enjoy, enjoy living for four years and have a, an unbelievable experience on the field. And it's, and, and there are a lot more, a lot of colleges out there that you haven't heard of right now that they can give you that experience. So I would encourage kids to do the same thing that you just said is just do your research, check out a lot of schools before you make a decision, visit as many places as you can, you know, go watch some teams play. Um, I don't know if I have any, any eligibility left, Tony, but every time I get on your website, I think I want to apply to the school. So not to give you a free pitch, but but really it's an unbelievable place if, if listeners just uh, were to check it out. Um, I, I've got to wrap it up here, Tony. I, I hate to do it, but we're going to have to have you back again sometime. I, I have like 15 questions I wanted to ask you we didn't even get to. So consider this part one of, of hopefully many uh, podcasts with Tony Cagool. Tony, again, is the pitching coach at Westmont College. Uh, it's an NAIA school in Santa Barbara, California. And, and from hopefully you've seen this over the last hour, but um, in addition to having a great tan, uh, Tony is a, a really – he's an energetic guy. He's, he's got a great perspective on the game. No ego, as you can see, um, and, and just a good person overall, a smart, uh, intuitive guy who I think – is again one of the he's one of the best pitching coaches around one of the best guys you'll find and uh we're really really blessed to have you be a part of figured out baseball altogether um hopefully we get more videos from you in the future as there, there's a there's so much information that you've got that i think would be really valuable to our listeners and uh you know today we're just we're really thankful that you spent an hour with us today on the podcast yeah jeff i appreciate it i look forward to to the future uh, with figure out baseball and, and hopefully connecting with, with players and families to help them, um, you know, for lack of a better term, figure out this journey. It's, it's not an easy one, but um, I think the more uh, experience you have as a, as a coach, you can, uh, you know, give some nuggets here and there that, that can hopefully make this easier on families and, and help in, in ways from, from near or far. And I'm really looking forward to, to being able to, to be a part of that. So thanks for having me on and thanks for allowing me to be a part of it. Yeah, man, you got it. There's a lot of questions that people have, and, and hopefully some things that we do will help them figure it out. So good luck to you guys this spring, and thanks again.
Thanks, Jeff.